If you're looking for a clean, sober, professional, academic, well-researched, historically accurate, generally accurate, serious podcast on Southern folklore, ghosts, bizarre events, and unique people, this podcast is not for you. However, if you've decided you can live with that, then join us for The Strange South. Well, hold on. Hi, Patrice. Hi, Courtney. <laughs> Hi, Marlea. Hi. Hi, Courtney. Gosh. I was just going to say that this drink reminds me of the, the best of the little push-up pocket freezer pops <laughs> that you get at the grocery store. Yes. That you They're like, they're liquid in the little pouches, and then you put them Neat. in the freezer, and they freeze. It reminds me of the lime ones. Mm. I was like, the first sip I took of it, I felt I could just taste the little ice flakes coming yes. off the top. It was so good. Yeah, it is so good. I've, I've made it up. So right now it's just a ginger mint limeade. It's vodka, so of course. <laughs> of course. So good. Fresh mint oh, from my oh. mint plant it is getting giant. These, I know these mint leaves are the huge. The mints were amazing. They were perfect mm. mint leaves. I just crushed them all up and just threw them in there. And it was, it's, it is so good. I'm almost done. I'm really kind of sad about that because I'm drinking it way too fast because it's so good. <laughs> you, you have two though, or did you make the double? I made the double. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Damn it! I'll have to oh go back God. to fuzzy toes after this. <laughs> I gave Patrice a little basket. I'll post it. And it has so the, the mason jar and all the ingredients. And it says enough for half all ingredients for two or just make it a double. So she went with it. Cheers I'm to dead. that. Cheers, <laughs> ladies. I, I pre-gamed earlier in the afternoon because I had, I got in a manic phase a couple of days ago and between 7.30 a.m. No, it was, I guess it was, it might've been on Friday because I speed walked a 5k for the first time ever on Friday Woo! morning. So I, I like, I know I was very proud because, and I, it's not a big deal for a lot of people, but it's a big deal for me. So I was like, yeah, I was very proud. And it's I got home by... I think I was home by 8.30 in the morning because I wanted to get it all done really fast before Amazing. it got hot and busy. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it gave me all this energy for the day. So I went through and like did all kinds of shit. Oh like I God. cut down trees. I made a bird feeder. I mean, I did. But before noon, I had done everything I could think of to do. And while I was cutting down these little saplings in my front yard, I realized they were taken over with honeysuckle. And... I had cut back all my honeysuckle vines not that long ago because they were killing my bushes, but these were blooming. So I was like, oh my God, I picked all the, the flowers because I had seen this recipe for honeysuckle syrup that you can use in cocktails. So I picked all the flowers and I made a little batch of honeysuckle syrup this weekend. I was looking forward to using it. So I was like, this afternoon, I'm going to look up a cocktail to use it pulled out some frozen blackberries and I also oh. discovered I have a wild I have a wild blackberry bush no! in my backyard now what? which I did ah! it just it's like I think because of the birds at the bird feeder must have brought some seeds and just dropped them and now I've got wild blackberries on my fence they're not ready yet so yeah. I went I got frozen blackberries and vodka mm. and honeysuckle syrup and club soda oh and muddled them all together God. and I was like this is as southern a drink as I could ever make <laughs> Absolutely. So it was, I mean, it was, it, I want, I think it needs something more. I think I would have to 
a, I need a well, bartender. You need some acidity, like you need some lime. I was gonna say, it needs some lime. It yeah, needs I was like, something. It's too sweet. It's mm-hmm. too sweet. It needs to be cut. So we we we're gonna have to work on it and I'm make getting, it amazing. I'm getting better with all the freaking BA kitchen. I've been watching when they start mm-hmm. talking about like, oh yeah, I need some acidity and it needs Balance, some, and yeah. obviously, obviously like sumac <laughs> is a thing. I don't know what the fuck sumac is. Like the only thing, Isn't it a poison it's a, it's a poison thing? sumac. Like that's what it is down here in the South. And so they're talking about adding sumac to everything it was supposed to be kind of like tart. I have no idea. like, stop! Right. Don't eat it. No. But that's been a lot of what I've been doing the past couple of days. It's just been binge watching that. I am so proud of you for that 5K and envious and jealous. I wish I could get myself into gear. And I have been having, like, this whole weekend, I've been self talking, which I guess is just thinking, right? But I have been thinking that. I really, I probably need to go back on my antidepressants Mm. because I have been just kind of in a rut and I'm kind of recognizing now I feel like I am starting to get into that cycle of seasonal depression that usually happens in February seems to be Mm -hmm. starting up. So I need to get back on my antidepressants, which I probably shouldn't have stopped taking my antidepressants, but say lovey. It Um, happens. It happens. But that manic, it's like when you get that manic energy, which I get every once in a while, it's like you just ride that. And that is like the You best. gotta ride it. It's the best <laughs> feeling. You get so much shit done. It's <laughs> like when you ride that manic energy, that, I get that manic energy. And when I get mad, too. Oh, so yeah. when I get angry, I have literally built a deck by myself. <laughs> being (laughs) furious i have your anger deck my anger deck i have (laughs) built well it's not like you know covered deck and all that like but when we used to live at this trailer park in college in startful there we have red clay and every time it rains, you know, if you didn't have like a way to get to your front door, you'd be tracking in red dirt and you cannot mm-hmm. like steam clean or get rid of red clay from your carpet. Mm-hmm. And it just kept pissing me off. But that wasn't the reason I was angry. I don't really know why I was angry. I have a feeling it had something to do with Chad, but <laughs> I don't really remember exactly what, but I was so mad and I had lumber because we had decks made, but you had to get like from the car to the deck and that's where all the red clay was coming in. So I literally built a walkway from extra lumber with that fury that I had in my gut. <laughs> and it's like probably the most productive I've ever been. And then of course, oh, like man. you have that come down after all that manic energy afterwards. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I love those manic waves. I feel like I've had some this weekend. I've been on a roller coaster from the protests and just everything going on. I don't think, I mean, I know we don't want to make our whole show about it, but I think it needs to be something we at least acknowledge. Thing that I think we really need to think about and figure out what we can do. Being in this mm-hmm. pandemic in the middle, though, I struggle with wanting to go protest and wanting to not spread coronavirus. So I know mm-hmm. a lot of people feel the same way. Yeah. All right. Yeah, some of my story addresses some of that. So, yeah, but I've been 
I've been doing things I can for my house. And so uh, Color of Change is a group I joined this week. So if that, that's one, I know Marlea has one she may have joined this week and donated to. So that's what I'm yeah. doing for now. They're, Lord, yeah, they, it's, it's, it's time. I mean, it's way past time for oh, yeah. this shit to stop. It's so far past time. And it's hard not to get jaded and just say like, well, what good is all this going to do in the long run? But the point is you, if, if we don't work harder and if we all don't start doing more, it's not going to change. So we've all, all of us have to do something. And yes, it's because this can't, this can't keep, this can't keep going like this. It was really weird because I just started listening to our last episode on the way over here because, you know, I was in my car. I came to help Courtney with her sound because we had trouble. <laughs> and so I was driving and I was listening to it and we were talking about how it's going to be like the summer of fun and it's going to be, you know, mm-hmm. and all this shit going on. And I'm like, no, it's the summer of, you know, brutality and fires and it's not feeling fun, so you know. Black it's the summer Lives Matter of change. Support. Let's say it's the summer of change. Absolutely, better be. Absolutely. No, I'll go last. Okay. I will say the I I did some escapism this like last night. I watched something that I had been that I had been wanting to watch since it came out last week, and that is Hannah Gadsby's new comedy show, Douglas. I watched last night. If you haven't watched Hannah Gadsby's Nanette, mm. look it up on Netflix. It's amazing. I mean, it's like, it's life-changing comedy slash not comedy. And it was going to be really hard to follow it up with another show. And I watched Douglas last night and it crapped my shit up. I mean, it was like, it, it was hilarious. It was great. And it actually had like a little, a little shout out to the, to the U.S. South, which was Super oh. cool because she she started going in and talking about how Americans say things differently than Australians do because she's from Tasmania, mm-hmm. and she you know when she went off starting to do this comedy show, her I guess handlers or agents or whatever were saying like you've got to talk American, you've got to translate some stuff, and she went on this whole tirade about how she shouldn't have to and you know this and this, but she's Absolutely. like there are some American words that I really want to adopt and I think are spectacular. And she said, y'all is the most inclusive second person personal or is the most inclusive second person plural pronoun in the English speaking world. And she said, thank you, the South. Absolutely. I am ready. Are you ready? Yes. (laughs) We apologize for the sound settings. It is... It is crazy during this time to try to get our podcast to sound as good as it did when we were all together because we're on different computers and different mics and stuff. So just please bear with us. We apologize, but hopefully we'll get you like something that doesn't drive you crazy out there where we're not like we all like really hard we miss we miss uh, voices we miss the pod basement so much for so many reasons my gosh but yes um, so don't get too don't get too happy because i'm about to talk about gruesome horrible murders because i haven't done that a boot. I'm a boot. <laughs> I'm a boot to talk. 
too Canadian. Nope. I'm about to talk about some murders. <laughs> oh. Okay. Uh, specifically, the vampire cult killings. <gasps> what? Of ni- 1996. What? I've not yeah. heard of this. Which I it's funny because it's the year that I graduated high school, and I would have thought that I would have been in sync with this kind of stuff, but I don't remember hearing about it ever. So here we go. Mm-hmm. The sources generally the most the most used sources that I had were, and I'll list more. But it is an HBO documentary. That was what? really hard to, to find um, back when HBO just went by home box office. <laughs> it was called uh, The Vampire Murders, and it was released in 1999. I'm going to say, you can only yeah, get it on what? YouTube. I know. I, it's like totally been off my radar. That's like not even, it's crazy. Okay, I've I'm had, listening. I've had this one in the back pocket for a while, but it's just not been the right time or anything. And so I'm just picking and choosing right now. But there's also some really good reporting from the Orlando Sentinel that, you know, thank God for the newspapers.com account. But here we go. Okay. So on the night of November 25th, 1996, 17 year old Jennifer Wendorf walks into her house in Eustis, Florida. And which I know because I used to live in Orlando. So Eustis is north of Orlando. We had friends who lived there, but she walks into her house in Eustis and she finds a traumatizing scene her father richard wendorf richard wendorf is dead on the living room couch her mother naomi queen new good lord i can't speak tonight her mother naomi ruth queen is dead on the kitchen floor there's blood everywhere both of her parents have been violently bludgeoned to death oh my god and her 15 yeah and her 15 year old sister heather is missing and her parents ford explorer is gone so Richard Wendorf, who is uh, Jennifer's father, was Jennifer's father, was a warehouse manager. He was respected. He was an honest man by all accounts, by his bosses, his colleagues. Ruth was a volunteer office worker at her daughter's high school. She just she painted, she gardened, she loved crosswords. This is the couple that is dead in this house. And Heather, their 15-year-old daughter has always has been considered sort of weird since she hit her teens. She wears a dog collar to school. You know, she dyes her hair weird colors. She hangs a Barbie from a noose on her backpack. I mean, she's, she's kind of going for the, the, you know, the factor. Yeah. The the shock factor, (laughs) but her teachers say that she's a good kid. She's not a problem student, but her dad has been worried that she's been hanging out with the wrong crowd. That could be a problem. And, So a couple years before this murder, Heather dated a boy named Rod Farrell, who had started going to Eustace High School in Florida with her after moving there from Kentucky. He'd moved back to Kentucky in 1995. He only lived in Eustace for a little while, but the two of them had kept in touch and Farrell had visited a couple times with her. So at the time of the murders, Farrell and his friends have recently been charged with breaking into an animal shelter in their hometown of Murray, Kentucky, and pulling the legs off of two live puppies. (gasps) Oh, my God. And beating about 40 more dogs in the animal shelter. They're part of what they call what they call a vampire clan. And so police suspect that they and maybe Heather are behind the murders of the Wendorfs. So Rod Farrell, Rod Farrell is 16 in 1996. He's only 16 years old. 
he was born in Murray, Kentucky, where, you know, he grew up most of the time and where he moved back to after he left Florida. His mom, Sandra Gibson, was only 16 when she had him. And his dad left when he was only a few weeks old. So he never had a relationship really with his dad. They lived on and off with Gibson's parents in Murray, Kentucky, but psychologists said that Farrell was abused and molested by his grandfather, who he, you know, the grandfather that they lived with. And there was evidence that his mother and aunt had been as well. So the situation was basically a baby raising a baby, both of whom probably needed psych help and neither of whom ever got it. So, you know, it was a pretty rough start. But as he got into his teens, Sandra and Rod Farrell would watch scary movies together. They enjoyed the same kind of stuff. They played RPG games like there was a game called Vampire the Masquerade that was released. I can't remember when it was released. Early 90s, I think. So it was basically like Dungeons and Dragons, but it was role playing specifically about vampires. Yeah, I vaguely remember that. And, you know, they read Anne Rice novels. This is all stuff that, you know, any kid who's interested in the darker side of things might have done. Right. Um, totally sounds like something I, would, I did and would do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He used to, you know, The Crow came out and he would, you know, dress yeah, up like so The Crow. Good. He Soundtrack. was kind of obsessed with that. It was amazing. I, you know, it's funny because I was watching the HBO documentary and they were talking about this and I was like, God, I got to watch that movie again. But then I was thinking like, dude, it is super violent. But, you know, at, at 15, 16, it's not beyond the range of what would be appropriate for a kid to watch, I wouldn't think, you know. But his mom said in an interview, quote, he was a blast to live with, an absolute blast of Rod. He didn't do well in school. He started using drugs really early and he and his mom, like, they would hang. You know, she ha would hang with all yeah, of his friends. That's not good. It doesn't yeah. sound It doesn't sound like a good situation. Yeah. She talks in one interview about, like, how he responded to different drugs. Like, heroin made him go nuts and stuff. Yeah. So, but she, she talked about it, like, well, clearly she was there then when he was doing them. Mm. And, you know, it, it's one of those. So he, he had done... By the time he was 15, 16, he had done heroin, cocaine, LSD. No. So Sandra and Rod Farrell moved to Utah, Florida from Kentucky when her parents bought a house there. And they, like I said, they didn't stay there very long before they moved back to Murray. They moved back to Murray in December of 1995. And when they get back to Murray, Farrell is taken into a vampire clan by a guy named Jaden Murphy. So... Contrary to what I expected when I started researching this, Rod isn't the one who started these vampire groups. This was, you know, and I imagine maybe if you looked into like rural areas in the South and Midwest around this time, this might not have been all that unusual that there were little pockets of teens that were like into this aesthetic and into a... When did goth come out? Like, when did that, like, became, like, a everyday word that we use? Is, was it around that, good question. that same time? I feel like it. that was around the same time. Well, it was time. definitely in our high school years. And Marlea, I mean, I was 97. Yeah, and, and I, I graduated in I was saying 90. It would be in the early 90s. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like it came, like, that I'm, 
either when I was like in college or right after college, just like goth became like a really big thing. Yeah, uh, I'm like... in Alabama, so <laughs> it came much later here than it did to the rest of the world. Oh, girl, I was, I was in, in Mississippi, Alabama. so yeah. So, you know. Marlea, you were in more of the East Coast near D.C. area. <laughs> Can you vouch well, for, like, the rest of the world? Can you vouch for South the goths the East Coast? Can you vouch for the goths? I mean, I, I know we... I know we had them. It's funny because I think we had more like alterna rogues. Like we had a lot of like grungers. Yeah. So grunge. And, yeah. Um, that was the big, like in the early 90s. So goth yeah, came after it, that. I feel like goth did come after that, but there were already people who were like pushing. I feel like the goth kids that I saw that I really, really identified as goth and saw as goth, I didn't really see until like 98 and after. That but it's because right. they went like, all the way you're talking like the ones that had the like the really wide-legged pants cut off at the bottom chains on their wallets chains on their arms and their face nose piercings everything's black all the makeup is black like these kids i didn't really start seeing until after i graduated high school that's that's about right it sounds right but i think that this kind of group of kids was the precursor to that group of kids right that's, I mean, that's what I'm thinking anyways. We're going to have to research like the anthropology of the goth culture after this. <laughs> but um, I'm on it. Googling yeah, it. I bet you are. subculture in England during the 80s. Well, because I was going to say, because b- punk and goth aren't punk that, they're, they're very mm-hmm. close together, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. so, you know, it's just in, so I don't know whether they called it goth then, but that's basically who you're talking about like with this group of kids but they specifically identified themselves as vampires and and again i imagine you might have found pockets of teenagers like this in a lot of similar towns because it wasn't just in kentucky they they were doing some of this stuff in eustace florida when he lived in florida there were people who were interested in it and kind of going down that road but there were like a large according to the police and murray Kentucky, there were there was a pretty large group of teens for a fairly small town, I think, that were into a lifestyle of vampirism. And so, you know, they would dress like goths. They would call them, they never said, it's funny because I listened to interviews with these guys and they never said vampires. They said vampires. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, (laughs) I am a vampire. But you know they're they're in they're in their mid-teens, so of course the sexual side of vampirism that that's you would all, expect to come. This sounds out. like all kind of a reaction to Anne Rice. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, yeah. I, and that's kind of why that kind of backup of the things that he might have been interested in is it's just kind of a cultural framework for right. where some of this might have come from. Is it? It seems like there were probably some like orgiastic cultures. There's probably just sexual exploration. Just have you ever you know, read it was any just of Anne Rice's frame. like erotic books? No, I mean I've read the vampire ones, several of those. Huh. Hey, we'll, check you out. Well, let me go. We hey, will Google. talk I about like this in a private rice. conversation. <laughs> after show, after show. Um, Continue. So basically, these it, it was it was little groups of outliers, you know, people that might see themselves as freaks, basically, mm-hmm. but they they see themselves as a different breed. You know, they see themselves as like a higher form of evolution. They they get into this kind of role play really deep 
And and this is related to, you know, when you talked in episode 30 about the St. Germain stuff right. and we talked about, you know, I think it was the after show of mm-hmm. that episode where we talked about like the vampire groups that, you yes. know, are in the South and other places. It's, it's still, no, it's very, yeah, it's around. It's yeah. Absolutely. So one of the things with that is the drinking of each other's blood, which we talked about in that after show episode where, you know, basically in order to, you know, you call yourself a vampire. So you would razor cut yourself and the other person would like either milk your blood into a glass and drink it or just lick it off of you because it's a sexual thing. You know, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to not make it a sexual thing when you're licking someone. Right. Um, yeah. Licking but, uh, usually is, is pretty sexual. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, this is, this is the kind of group that he's, you know, invited into when he gets back to Kentucky and Sandra, of course, is into it also because, you know, they're best buds and so much so that, Early in 1996, she is charged with criminal solicitation to commit rape after she writes letters to a 14-year-old boy telling him that she wants him to cross her over while they have sex. Like, to, what? With, she, you know how, like... When, how old is um, she? She is, she was 16 when she had Rod, 32. and Rod is 16 now, so she's 32. And this 14-year-old is a little brother of one of the people in their vampire group. Oh, my God. And so, you know, she's she's, she's a piece of work. She's a horrible person. And by cross you over, you know, in case you're not familiar, it's like, you know, when you adopt someone or you, when, you, when you make someone into a vampire in this culture, I guess, is when you drink their blood and they drink your blood and then you're their, you know, vampire parent, basically. Right. It's, it's kind of like a hazing yeah through orgy yeah whatever yeah (laughs) so that's what she was she was saying that's what they were gonna do and um she got you know taken to court well as she should and should have been in jail appropriately so in january 1996 jaden murphy who's the one who invited him into this clan invites feral to cross over himself and become a vampire. And I watched part of the HBO documentary. It was interviews with Rod Farrell. Like he's fairly young in the interviews. It's probably not that long after he, this all happened, but he says, quote, he took me to a tree in a cemetery where all chosen ones had been made by their sires, unquote. And I'm like, dude, you're in tiny town, Kentucky. You're in Kentucky, dude. You're not in Transylvania. There's not a fucking castle here. This is like, you're in fucking Kentucky. And, but this is how but this is how he talks though. And this is part of what's disturbing. If you go on and watch this video of him, this HBO documentary, he is calm and he is formal and he is haughty. And that it took me forever to get to figuring out who he sounded like, but, and don't laugh too hard. He sounds like fucking Ron Swanson. He sounds like Nick Offerman. He sounds like Nick Offerman's character in Parks and Rec. If you imagine Ron Swanson talking calmly about committing horrible crimes, would that not be scary though? For real? Uh, Yeah. The dude has mental health problems because i'm like his and that's the way he talks he's got that formality and that like absolutely unflappable like just looking straight through people when he talks Delusional. so yeah he sounds like he's written a story in his head and he's yeah. like the super villain hero and he's, and he's just it reciting it 
Yeah. And he, he's, it's very disturbing to watch him talk. I mean, really, really disturbing. So he's in this cult and one night he's walking with Jaden Murphy in a trailer park and he's got found this little stray cat and it's, he's picked it up and he's petting it and it turns around and scratches him. He grabs it by the head and smashes it against a tree. And this is the point when Jaden says he knows that Rod is going off the deep end. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you, it took you this long, wow. but he starts, Farrell starts saying that he is a 500 year old vampire named Visago. He starts talking about taking over other vampire clans in Murphy. He starts threatening other teenage vampires in town. He starts threatening Jaden Murphy, who is his like maker. Vampire turf war, right? It is. It totally is. It's like what that actually happens in a movie, right? That's like blade and all these. <laughs> oh, it happens always in like turf wars. all of like the vampire books that I exactly. may or may not have read, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in November, 1996, Farrell has been feuding with Jaden Murphy to the point that I think Jaden even got a um, restraining order against him. And, Farrell decides he's going to start his own clan. So he in he recruits Scott Anderson, who is 16, Charity Shea Keezy, who is 16, who is Farrell's girlfriend and is also pregnant with his child, apparently, at this time. Dana Cooper, who is 19, and Heather Wendorf, who is 15. Heather doesn't live in Kentucky. As you know, she lives in Florida with her family, but they kept in touch. So Farrell decides that he and Charity are going to get married in Florida, in Daytona, and all five of them will all drive to New Orleans together after that, and they'll all get an apartment together in New Orleans. So he wants to move his whole clan down to, you know, Anne Rice's stomping. They're looking for Lestat. They're looking for Lestat. And they've got active vampire groups down there, too. Exactly. So so Scott Anderson, Farrell, Dana, and Charity pick up Scott's little Buick Skyhawk, and they had to use this Florida to pick up Heather. Are you laughing about this car? Yeah. So they get to Eustace on November 25th, 1996. They wait for Heather down the road from her house. And because, you know, of course, she hasn't told her parents she's leaving or anything. She's running away, basically. So she walks down the street and meets them there. And she, Dana and Charity take the Skyhawk back to Heather's boyfriend's house. And they leave Farrell and Anderson behind. So Farrell and Anderson have realized that they need cash, they need food, and they also realize their car is too small for the number of people that they're going to be taking on the rest of the next leg of the trip. So they need another car. And they decide that the Wendorf's house is where they're going to get all of this stuff. So they walk down to the Wendorf's house on Green Tree Lane. They reach the house around 9.30 p.m., all the doors are unlocked, apparently. Um, in the garage, Farrell picks up a crowbar, and he says in his first interview with the police that he thinks that he might need it to defend himself because he knows he's going in to steal from people and they might catch him. So, But when he walks in, Richard Wendorf is asleep on his couch. Murphy Brown is playing on the TV. Ruth Wendorf is in the shower. So, you know, Farrell and Anderson can rummage around for everything they want. They look for cash. They look for car keys. Richard doesn't wake up this whole time. So at this point, they could just walk right back out the door and no one would even ever know they were there. Mm-hmm. But instead, he takes the crowbar and he starts battering Richard in the head where he lays asleep on the couch. 
And in an interview from jail, he says he had a moment where he thought about all the possible consequences and the things that could happen to him and to other people. And then he says, quote, one voice came forth and just said, fuck it. And that's when I brought the crowbar down. And then he says he and Scott basically, not even basically, he says that he and Scott like danced around the body of Richard Wendorf. And then Ruth comes out of the back of the house from the shower and she sees Farrell. She doesn't see her husband, which is, it's weird for me to think like, thank God she didn't see her husband right. at this moment. And she thinks that she's being robbed though. Cause there's a stranger in her house and she asks him what he wants. Actually, no, cause he's not a stranger. She knows him. She's seen him before, but she does feel like she's being robbed. So she asks him what he wants. And he says, quote, I went forth to attack her. She has a cup of hot coffee in her hand that she's taken back to her bedroom with her and she throws it on him to defend herself. And then he starts to stab her in the head and neck with a crowbar more than 20 times so violently that her brain stem is severed. Oh Farrell goes back then and marks a V on Richard Wendar's chest. He leaves burn marks on both the bodies. Farrell and Anderson find the car keys and steal the Ford Explorer. About an hour later, Heather's sister comes home, and that's when she frantically calls the police. Al Gussler was the detective at the Lake County Sheriff's Office, the first one on the scene. He said he had never seen anything in his entire career worse than what he saw when he walked in the house. And the Orlando Sentinel got hand, got their hands on one of the original crime scene videos, the walkthroughs that the police did and the investigators did. And they used it, I think, with they really overused it in this documentary that I watched. It's, it's gruesome. I mean, it's super gruesome. They show everything and it is hard to look at. So Anderson and Farrell have left with the Ford Explorer. They change it to Kentucky plates. Then they go meet their friends. They dump the Buick Sky or Skyhawk in town. And then they all take off for new Orleans. It doesn't take very long for the police to realize that they are connected to these crimes and to Heather's disappearance. These two guys, like they didn't even try to do anything to cover their tracks. The Heather has told multiple people that she wanted to run away. All of her friends and acquaintances and her parents' acquaintances all know about her and Rod Farrell. Plus the teens were tagged by a police deputy not long after they got into Eustace before they went to the Wendorfs, this police deputy had seen them trying to deal with a deflating tire on the car. And since they were acting oddly and they, you know, they looked weird, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and all, but one of them was under 18. He had approached them and he had written down all their names and addresses. So they were already on the radar Right. And it was really easy for people to put two and two together. So meanwhile, on the road, Rod Farrell keeps the blood-soaked crowbar under his seat and holds it up and shows it off to the others over and over again while they drive and retells the murder each time in detail. And Heather, meanwhile, is sitting in the back and had no idea he was going to do anything to her parents. And she's been, you know, she's she's fought with them. I mean, like recently... Her relationship with them has been kind of a little bit fraught, but it wasn't like hardcore at all. Right. And she didn't want her parents dead. So she's in the back seat with this psychopath, right. you know, telling her over and over again how he murdered her parents. And she's in complete shock and she's 
15. I mean, she's 15 years old and said in an interview, you know, if he could do that to my parents, what could he do to me? Mm -hmm. So on November 27th, murder warrants are issued for all five of these teenagers. On the 28th, they reach Baton Rouge and they're out of money. So Charity Kesey makes a phone call to her mom to get her mom to wire her money because she's 16. And of course, the police have told all the parents of all these kids report if you hear anything at all. And so, of course, she does. And between the information Charity gives her mom and the sound of tugboats in the background of the call, the police figure out really easily what the location is that they're at. And this is Rod was even monitoring this phone call like he was standing there while she called. They were they just weren't. They're just I mean. Violent, dumb. They're fucking kids. They're horrible. So they, you know, all these cop cars converge on the Howard Johnson or uh, Howard Johnson's parking lot. And all these kids are arrested, all five of them. The arresting officer says that Heather is the only one who looks even remotely upset. Everybody else is just kind of stony faced. Heather is just, just beside herself. Right. Um, Most of them have scars and recent cuts from bloodletting because they've been doing their normal kind of vampirism stuff on the road. Cops were saying one of the arresting police officers said that because of the hold that Rod Farrell had on these other four teens, if he hadn't been caught, he would have recruited more and become like a huge cult leader. They were they thought that if if this if he hadn't been caught for this, it would have been it would have escalated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like the narcissist that he is, Farrell confesses on tape in police custody almost immediately in detail. But again, as soon as he's done that, like the next day starts trying to back away from that, like kind of recognizing it seems like he goes back and forth between being proud of all of this and being terrified. And so, you know, he goes and starts saying, oh, well, I have blackouts oh, well, there's another vampire group that framed me and it wasn't me, but there's a boot mark in the pool of blood in the Wendorf's carpet that matches his and his DNA is under Ruth's fingernails. So there's really not a question here. He then tries to blame it on Heather and says that Heather told him that she was abused at home and he was trying to save her from a horrible home life with her parents. His mom, Sandra, says that Heather has been telling them for years that she wanted to kill her parents. But then they give Sandra a polygraph test and it doesn't hold up. And Heather left a note when she left her parents' house that night that ends with, I love you all so very much. I mean, there was there is not a whole lot of evidence that she... Hated her parents and wanted them to die. Yeah. Yeah. So the defense points out that Farrell has depression. He has schizotypal personality disorder, but he lies so often during the psych exams that they even have to scrap the psych exams because of all the lies he tells. Like they they can't even get a a pinpoint on him. So in February, yeah. In February 1998, he gives up all of this and he just pleads guilty, hoping it'll keep him out of the chair. He is sentenced to death. He is 18 years old at the time, the youngest person on Florida's death row. But in 2000, his sentence is reduced to life because he was only 16 at the time of the killings. After his sentencing outside the courtroom, his mom yells to reporters, we will live forever. Like this woman just. They need to lock her up too. Right. 
So Farrell repeatedly in interviews takes responsibility for what he has done. He says he made the wrong choice. But even when he's saying things that sound like they should be introspectful and remorseful, he still sounds like a narcissist. He still sounds fantastical and romantic and grandiose about everything he says and everything that happened. And I watched an interview that was taken in 2011 because I was like, maybe this is just the way he sounded that couple first couple years, you know, maybe it, maybe it mellowed him out or maybe it grounded him or something. He didn't sound any different in 2011 than he sounded in 1996. And people have said that he sounds a lot like Richard Ramirez did in the interviews that they took with the night stalker. Um, and the way he talked about himself and his connection with Satan and his, you know, his just, just fanatical narcissism. So as far as the other kids in this group, Scott Anderson, who was in the house but didn't personally hurt anyone, gets life with no parole. And it was later reduced to 40 years in prison. Dana Cooper served 17 years. Charity Kesey served 10 years. Heather Wendorf was cleared of all charges and has always denied any connection to her parents' murder. Multiple times, Rod Farrell has tried to have his sentence reduced because he was 16 when he did the crime. But most recently, in April of this year, just a couple of months ago, he tried to do it. But in a 55-page decision, Circuit Court Judge Richard Richard Singletary concluded that Farrell, who is now 40 years old, cannot be released, saying he is, quote, irreparably corrupt. So the vampire cult killings, you know, I mean, I'm glad that I guess justice was served as best it could be. It sounds like this is the best possible ending to a really, really, really horrible story. But and there's oh, there's uh, the legendary Shack Shakers, if you know that that band did a song called Bluegrass that is inspired by Rod Farrell and the vampire cult killings. So Wow. So he was story. the one ripping puppy legs off too, right? It was him and who else? Him and Scott Anderson were both charged oh, with that. I had no idea any of that shit went down during that time. Trying to think. I had never heard of it. Yeah. Me either. That's fucked up, man. Good storytelling. I had a picture of him. He's, he's, mm hmm. Yeah, his pictures of him are like when he was arrested, he had dark hair, long dark hair, shaved on one side, and he's, he looks a little, I mean, he looks crazy. I mean, he's like making faces at people and he looks like a maniac. All right. Take a break. Take a break. Rose was out there trying to get your drink. Yes. See, she is my fearless cat. She's the best cat I ever had. And I hate her most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) She was sweet. She wanted me to pet her, but I didn't didn't pet her because I don't know. I didn't want to transmit. (laughs) Any possible. That's all right. You never know what she's been rolling in, so that's probably the safest bet. I meant to tell you, too, I had sanitized all the things. Mm. (laughs) You know, I've been pretty lax about sanitizing all of my stuff that I've been getting from the grocery store. I feel feel I'm a little bit safer because it hasn't been like, everybody's getting it because of your groceries. 
Well, and in fact, they're saying they're saying that the risk of transmission through surfaces is way lower than they expected. So, like, yes. So you're backed up by science. Exactly. Good. We love science because it was a hassle. It was a hassle. Oh my god! And my hands were cracking. Minutes just to unload my groceries. Right from like all the hand washing in between. Yeah. Just yeah. I know my knuckles are still cracked every day, but I'm that's afraid. okay. I'm washing my hands. I got there's bigger problems than that right now. Have groceries, have a house. Yep. Have you guys yep. have kitchen? Mm, absolutely <laughs> insane. Yeah. So I have didn't really go through and fine tune my story, and I apologize if it's very disconjointed <laughs> ahead of time because I know I'm not going to give it the I'm not going to give it what it needs or what it could be. So. That's my. So you changed from your original. I didn't change. I've I've left the original in, but I was thinking, and and Marleya, I already told Marleya what it was about and and the problems that I had with it. But yeah, let me just get into it. Go for it. So basically, who is Johnny Cash, right? Who is Johnny Johnny Cash? The man in black. (laughs) He is the man in black. He was born in 1932. He's an American singer-songwriter. Pretty much, if you've been living under a rock, everybody knows who Johnny (laughs) Cash is, right? He... He's yeah. known for like embracing country music, rock and roll, rockabilly, blues, folk, gospel. So he has like a very wide range of genres that he embraced during his career. He also has like the rare honor of being inducted into the country music, rock and roll, and the gospel music hall of fame. So he's, oh, he's inducted oh, I didn't know that. into like three different hall of fames. He has sold more than 90 million records worldwide and you know, he was born poor in Arkansas and came up and started becoming popular like in the 1950s. If you've studied Southern history or American history, you know, in the 50s about Jim Crow laws and Mm -hmm. the civil rights movement and all that stuff that was going on down here. So when he was getting into his career, that's kind of the things that were going on. But he rose to fame around, like, he moved to Memphis, recorded at Sun Records, which is where Elvis recorded and became famous as well. And he's known for, like, like his train-chugging guitar. He's, like, this really low voice. Johnny Cash, right? I know, um, it's weird to describe Johnny Cash because you're like, everybody knows everybody Johnny Cash. Everybody should know, but in case, if you don't remember. There may be somebody who doesn't. If you don't, yeah. If you judging. Don't, yeah. So, you know, his well, trademark was maybe, all but... black uh, when he was on stage. And so that's why they call him the man in black. And he would just simply come up there and say, hello, I'm Johnny Cash. And then they would start their set. And everybody would scream. Right? So Murder ballads, too. Murder ballads, ballads, too, for sure. In 1955, he made his first recording at Sun Records. He made Hey Porter, which I don't recognize, but he also, because I'm not a big Johnny Cash fan. I mean, I know his, like, very popular songs, but I don't know, like, his whole collection. One year ago today, I think, right, we were at Podex, and I was at the museum that day. Oh, yeah. so that's right. That's right. Because right Johnny across, Cash. yeah, right across mm-hmm. from where we were at Podex in Nashville was mm-hmm. Johnny Cash yeah. Museum. So he recorded Cry, 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 which we all know. Or you would know if you know some of Johnny Cash. He's like, cry, cry, cry. He's so low. His voice so cry, cry, cry. But when he was, like, younger, yes. they said that before his voice changed, he was actually a high 
tenor kind of voice really? when he sang. He started 1955, started his career, became popular, was doing the circuit back in the day with all the other musicians. And they were, him and his band were wrapping up the circuit before they went back to Memphis. And they happened to play Startful, Mississippi on May 11th, 1965. So about 10 years after his career started. So he played a concert there at Mississippi State University, and let's see if I... It was actually in the Animal Husbandry Building at Mississippi State. <laughs> so Mississippi State is a land... Yeah, is a land-grant institute. They're known for their agriculture, or they started... Initially, they were known for their agriculture and farming schools. So anyway, <laughs> the barn that... The thing about it is, is that a lot of people came through that animal husbandry, that barn there at Mississippi State to play. My mom went to several concerts. She saw the Everly Brothers. She saw Janis Joplin. I think she saw Santana. Oh, nice. So she saw all of these huge legends back at that time coming to play through this barn here at Mississippi State. <laughs> so it was just kind of crazy. Yeah, that's awesome. So after the show, the rest of the band headed up to Memphis because Memphis from Mississippi State is probably about a two and a half hour drive or maybe three hour drive. The rest of the band went to Memphis. I think June stayed and one of his other friends stayed. And this was at the height of Johnny Cash's drug addiction. So afterwards he was looking for a party and he went like to the fraternity houses and he partied there and was up drinking. And then after that was over, he went back to the hotel, but he needed, there's, there's lots of different, like, well, there's not lots. There's like two sides. There's Johnny Cash, what he said he was doing, but of course he was drunk and on pills <laughs> at this time. And then this was what other people saying that he was doing. So he didn't want to stop partying and more to the point he was looking for pills we believe and so he was just wandering around he says he was searching for some place to buy cigarettes and he actually made it to his way to this private party on Longmeadow subdivision and either while going there or right after going there he got sidetracked because he ended up in somebody's yard and they called the cops on him and when the cops came, they arrested him for public drunkenness. And he would just told him, he was like, I just stopped off to pick some flowers. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so they, they Look said, at the flowers. yeah, just picking flowers. So they brought the drunk Johnny Cash back to the Octavia County Jail. And he was in a cell with a 15 year old guy named Smokey Evans and drunk or high or whatever he was on at the time Johnny Cash was you know he was very he had like Johnny Cash has this legendary mystique around them so he's very like he's dark and he's got this low voice and he's kind of known to be a rebel and you know he has just this presence about him so he started Drunk Johnny Cash was very rebellious, and he was kicking <laughs> the, <laughs> the cell wall so hard that he broke his toe. So he took off his shoe, and he gave them to that 15-year-old Smokey Evans guy, and he's like, here's a souvenir. 
I'm Johnny Cash. <laughs> I'm Johnny Cash. Which I think is really just probably more of a story because that's just kind of silly. But I don't know. You don't know. It's just him and Smokey knowing what's going on. After about six hours, he collected his things from the motel, or he collected his things and or was released. He paid like $36 to be released after he sobered up. Then he went to the motel, ate breakfast, and left town. And Starful, it was not really a big deal to Starful. Starful didn't gossip about it. It wasn't like something that was on the paper. It just was this thing that happened and if you were like involved in it you knew about it but if not you really didn't know anything about it and Starpole pretty much forgot about it however Johnny Cash wrote a song about it and there well, is here, here it go it is in 1969 he debuted the song Starpool City Jail to the inmates in San Quentin Jail and he, he told them this. This is a quote from Johnny Cass. You wouldn't believe it. One night I got in jail in Starkville, Mississippi for picking flowers. I was walking down the street and, you know, <laughs> going to get me some cigarettes or something about two in the morning after a show. I think it was. Anyway, I reached down and picked a dandelion here and a daisy there. And as I went along, this car pulls up and he says... Get in, get it, hold on, this doesn't make sense. Get it the <laughs> hell in here, boy. Get it the hell in here, boy. What are you doing? I said, I'm just picking flowers. Well, $36 for picking flowers and a night in jail. You can't hardly win, can you? No telling what they do for pulling an apple or something. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to go back at that fella down in Starkville, Mississippi, uh, that still has my sixty, my $36. So that's kind of like his intro, and then he sings a song. And I listened to the song, and of course you never heard about it because it's not that really great of a song. <laughs> but it's basically him there singing in his Johnny Cash style with his Johnny Cash drum, um, drums, with the Johnny Cash guitar picking, you know, telling the whole story about how he got arrested for picking flowers. Does he talk about the shoe? It may. I didn't listen to it through the whole, because I got through like maybe a minute of it. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you are not a Johnny Cash fan. <laughs> I just, who is that other singer songwriter that basically sings like what they're doing? They, they did the Toy Story <laughs> a song. It's just, Randy it's just Newman. Randy Newman. Is it Randy Newman? It's, oh. He's so Randy Newman that, and I just, I, I can only what? tell. Wait, how can, oh, wait. no. No, Johnny Cash is so, not Randy so Newman. So I'm going to the jailhouse, <laughs> and I'm well, picking some flowers. Wait, I, I mean, that's basically what it is. with this. What? I'm really having a problem with this comparison. <laughs> but, Maybe this one song that I don't know, but I just can't. That's we're going to need to. We're going to lean to listen to this song. <laughs> well, Randy Newman is known for just describing the story as the song lyrics. And so okay. that's, that's kind of the same. That's, that was the comparison. Nothing stylistically other than the same method of songwriting, I guess. So anyway. Starful City Jail, live at San Quentin. Live at San Quentin. 
So, you know, Johnny Cash died in 2003, divorced his wife, married June Carter. There's like many books and there's a movie and all this stuff about it. Well, in 2007, this guy who was a really big fan of Johnny Cash and knew about the Startful flower picking incident decided to have a Johnny Cash flower picking festival in honor of Johnny Cash there picking flowers in Startful, Mississippi. Huh. And so that started in 2007. Startful City publicly pardoned Johnny Cash and gave back his daughter the $36 that he had to pay oh for God. his. So, um, they didn't take inflation into account. <laughs> they would not. But you can go on a walking tour of, you know, Johnny Cash's journey during this time. And I don't know what they do. I would think, I have never been to the Flower Picking Festival in Startful. I don't know what they do because to me, that's kind of like incentive to pick flowers. And so you don't want a whole bunch of people showing up to pick flowers. So anyway, I, it just seems problematic to me. So <laughs> the name of it, you know, they probably have flowers. I'm sure they've got like flowers somewhere Plants. for you to pick. Do they yeah. tell everybody to not mow their lawns for like two weeks before it? <laughs> because that's enough dandelions for everybody. Oh, if absolutely. you ask me, like at this time of year in the South Hill. Absolutely. So, you know, you can go on the tour. You can see where he stayed at the motel room 22. You can see the jail house and the jail cell is still there. There's a plaque that says Johnny Cash, May 11th. 1965. Johnny Cash. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Johnny Cash. So he, despite like this whole persona that has kind of followed him as being like, you know, this hell raiser and everything, you know, and he's been in jail. He landed in jail like seven times for misdemeanors. The startful incident was the only one he ever wrote a song about. And he, huh. and, and you know, he performed this at the San Quentin and on the San Quentin Live album, but he actually got arrested. I don't know if it was the same year. That year was like really bad. That was like his peak addiction period. And he got arrested in Texas for smuggling heroin from Mexico. Whoa. And he also had 688 amphetamine sorry <laughs> amphetamine uh, capsules on him and Shit. 475 sedative and tranquilizers on him and he never spent more than one night in jail and this is Jesus kind of, Christ this is where I'm going to pivot to this story and this is this was the original story I was going to tell but just thinking about this situation and how he was treated in 1965 compared to other musicians at the time is really the crux of what I want to talk about. Yeah. So, you know, the most, he had to post like a $1,500 bond bail, but for that much drug smuggled into the U S by one single person, his privilege definitely helped him out there Damn. so in 1965 when this concert was going on during the worst year that he had for drug addiction 
was also the same year that Voting Rights Act of 1965 took a place where Lyndon B. Johnson was trying to overcome the legal barriers that states and local levels had at preventing African Americans from exercising their right to vote. So the civil rights movement was like in full swing during this time. However, in the South, and it could be argued still, when the civil rights movement happened, there was tightening up of Jim Crow laws. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know what Jim Crow laws, and if it's been a while, or if you haven't thought about it recently, Jim Crow laws were at the state and local level it was a enforced racial segregation, especially in the southern United States at the time, that came about after the Civil War. A lot of the states and local governments with the emancipation of enslaved people by law were required to free them. However, they started enforcing and not treating the previously enslaved people as human beings. The Jim Crow laws came into effect, which in a lot of times is an unspoken law meant to disenfranchise and remove political and economic gains from African Americans during this time. So most of these little stories that I'm going to tell you come from this really great Rolling Stones article uh, by Steve Noper called The Rope, The Forgotten History of Segregation and Rock and Roll Concerts. And this really interests me because, and this is a lot of the conversation I had with my husband, Chad, this weekend, because my husband, by day, he's an art professor, but by night, he is a musician, and we do have a lot of musician friends, and we do, you know, the coronavirus happened, and Pretty much everybody became unemployed, and we understand the struggles that a lot of these musicians currently today have, but this interests me, and you don't really think about how much musicians, African-American musicians, especially during the civil rights and pre-civil rights time, how much they had to deal with. And this is just a couple of little stories, and we were talking about this today, Chad and I, like how many stories are out there. And it's not like a story here or there. It's like pretty much everybody, if you were black during this time period, had a just really scary, unbelievable story just from the simple fact that you were an African-American performer during the time of civil unrest during the 50s and 60s. So... One of the first things that this Rolling Stone article talked about was the Flamingos played in a concert hall in Birmingham. The Flamingos, if you're not familiar with that name, they wrote that song, I Only Have Eyes for You, which is like one of the most beautiful songs ever. I love that song. Oh, it's so good. Yes. Yes. So they were performing in Birmingham in the 1950s concert hall. But when they pulled up, and this is the difference in like somebody like Johnny Cash and then somebody that was African-American during this time playing in the South. So they pulled up and there was a row of 30 to 50 police officers holding rifles and billy clubs waiting for them to escort just six members of this group in order to play this concert hall in Birmingham. Holy shit. They were told not to make eye contact with 
anybody that was white. They were only, they could only like look at people who were black and the people. And of course the, the whites and the blacks were separated. They were segregated in this concert hall with the whites being on the floor and the blacks being in the balcony. So they basically could not look at anybody while they were playing. One of the guys during this period said, or from the Flamingo said, you know, how it's like, as being the performer there, when people are responding and they're smiling and they're happy about your music and they're applauding you, how can you not look at them? He's like, this mm-hmm. just, he's, it was just so unbelievably just bizarre. So they couldn't stay during this time. And I don't know, I know, I don't know a lot of Alabama history but I do know about their governor during this time and about the segregation and about like how hard a time Alabama was having because of their governor. I have to look that up. I'm not really sure um, who their governor was at this time, but you know, the music fifties in the fifties and sixties, not George Wallace. Then. That's George I just Wallace kept on thinking George one. Wallace. George yeah. Wallace is definitely one during this time, but during uh, during civil rights anyway. Right. Era. Okay. So you know, musicians coming through the South, they couldn't stay in hotels. They were served rotten food at restaurants if they oh. dared go to a restaurant, and they were outright banned from others. They would instead have to just drive out and stay with friends and eat at friends' houses. One of the platters, y'all remember the platters? They yeah. Sang, the Great Pretender and Only mm. You. Okay, I can't sing. Yeah. But yeah, lovely. Just the best songs ever. But in Atlanta, Georgia, the one of the guys from the group said that you would have your name and lights, you know, on the marquee, but you were not allowed out front to even look at it. Oh my God. Wow. Charles Neville of the Neville Brothers, who comes out of New Orleans, in this article talked about in 1959 that they were playing in New Orleans and there was actually this famous inn called the Dewdrop Inn, which catered to exclusively African-American crowds. Because that was one of the things, you could play one or the other, but they couldn't mix. And so... This, this inn actually like catered to African-Americans and they had, of course, you know, pe- white people wanted to come in and hear them. And so he's telling this tale about three young white women who disguised themselves like in glasses and covered up their hair and everything to come in to hear the Neville brothers play uh, at the Dewdrop Inn in New Orleans. And he said one night... You know, and it happened a lot. It's like they were trying to sneak and outsmart the Jim Crow laws. And he said one night after they were in there that Charles Neville and another guy from the band stepped out to have a smoke. And the New Orleans police handcuffed them to a telephone pole, hauled out the women, asked, what the hell are you doing here? And they watched the cops beat the women so badly that they had to go to the hospital. Wow. Charles thought they were going to die then, you know, right then, because they're like, if they beat the white women severely, then what's going to happen to us? Um, I was telling, I was talking about this with my husband earlier, 
just about these incidences. And he was like, well, you know, Miles Davis went on set break in Philadelphia during the height. I mean, fucking Miles Davis, right? Went on the set break, stepped outside to smoke a cigarette. The police grabbed him and beat the shit out of him. So this was very commonplace. Charles talks about like the absurdity of a lot of things that they had to do and then how just fucking scary situations that they were in. And he said some of the absurd things is like they played a strip club and the club owner hung a curtain on the stage to separate the strippers from the band so that the white women stripping could not be seen or look at the musicians that they were stripping to. You know, the music they were... So it was just like, just really fucked up shit. He said, though, the scariest that he went through was when he was in Florida. And hold on, let me find it. That's okay, okay, man. I'm in it. So we're talking about when they were in Florida playing a gig in 1956. They were driving Larry Williams is a group that he played with. And Larry Williams, I'm sure, is not a name that you're familiar with. He was rocker and R&B singer-songwriter. He wrote Dizzy Miss Lizzie, which you don't know about, but actually people heard it when the Beatles picked it up in 1960s and covered them. Oh. So he was touring with Larry Williams 1956, and they were in this Lincoln Continental in Florida, and it had New York license plates, and it had a bumper sticker that read, this vehicle breaks for blondes, which it's, you know, it's funny, it's a little sexist, but you know, <laughs> 1956. It's good that we don't kill blondes. That's right. Nice. And so he pulls up into this gas station and this guy goes, what do you boys want? So let's talk about the word boys and thugs. Yeah. So we all know what thugs mean and how it is used and the people who use it, what they're really saying. And back in the day, it was the same for boys as far as a word used to put African-American men in their place. Anytime somebody would talk and call you a boy, it's definitely meant and as a certain connotation and meant to lessen your humanity your your humanity mm-hmm. good word yes. yeah to lessen yeah. your humanity is what it was used so he's like what what you boys want and so they're like we need gas and so the guy went into the gas station and he came back out with the second guy who happened to be the local sheriff and he told the men in the car he, he said we got a report that you'd been speeding on your way into town which, first of all, total lie. How could yeah. they know? No speed trap, no evidence. But 1956, they don't, you know. Don't need. They, they just, don't yeah. Need it, it was their word against, you know, this car full of out-of-towner African-Americans. And so the men were promptly arrested just for trying to get gas. And Williams was forced to wire $150, which is a lot of money back in 1956. I didn't do the calculation, but it's a lot of money. 1956 to pay their ticket for this supposedly speeding. And they were released out. And Neville said when they got back out, they saw that the bumper sticker had been scraped off. 
You know, it's interesting. So that $150 and 56 compared to the $36 and 65. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. After this, Neville did uh, a couple of years in the U S Navy. He returned to his musical career. His musical career got derailed by uh, a growing father. Huh? Who is, is he Aaron? He's is the he brother. Aaron? So oh. the Neville brothers, brother. they're brothers, brother. right? Okay. So the yeah, next. you and may know Aaron. He's the one that has like the mole that you can't stop looking at on his face. <laughs> I'm sorry. Tune, like the high voice. His very high, high voice. Like, yes. And I was listening, yes. I was listening to some of their, in the seventies, they kind of blew up and they have, if you listen Ooh. to it, it's really, why do I not listen to more Neville brothers? Because they're funky as <laughs> shit. And they're really good. So anyway, when he got out of the Navy and tried to get back into music, of course, drugs were rampant in them and still are really in, in the entertainment and, and music field. And so he had this habit and it derailed his career. And he got caught with two joints and sentenced for five years in jail. And not Holy only... He sentenced in jail. He got caught with two joints in Louisiana. So they sent him to the Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola. So Angola Penitentiary is actually a former slave plantation. So it's just, it's pretty much, they call it the Alcatraz of the South. It is the worst place to go. And he served actually only like three and a half years, but still for two joints. Jeez, for two joints. Instead of that whole heroin stash and amphetamines, I can say it now, amphetamines and, <laughs> you know, downers, quaaludes that was brought in from Mexico. So again, I mean, Shit. we all know the story. We all know how it's the inequality mm-hmm. of the situation. But this was in 1950. It's been over 50, 70 years, you know, 50, 60, Jesus years. Jesus Christ. So anyway, when he got out, he immediately left the South, which is the smart thing to do during that time, and moved to New York City, which still has its problems. It wasn't like all, you know, rose water. But mm-hmm. he rebuilt his music career. He got treatment for his drug problems, and he started gigging more with his brothers. And, you know, they hit it big in the 70s and toured together, worked together for 35 years, and they released 10 studio albums, and they're included in the Louisiana Music Hall of Fame, among other honors. And if you look it up, I mean, y'all, there are so many stories about what happened to musicians during, and even before this time. You know, we did the, did the, the oh my gosh, Johnson story. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Crossroads story, Robert Johnson. Thank you, Robert Johnson story. And you know they, he was talking about they knew the danger of going, it's following this trail of being a musician and playing for people during the Jim Crow era. And it's just something they grew mm-hmm. up with, and they knew the danger. They knew what to look out for. They knew how to try to protect themselves, but still situations like just fucking getting gas you know, could lead to your arrest. And so when the pandemic happened, musicians in the family and having so many friends and family being musicians, the pandemic just pretty much, it's become like this great 
time of creativity. Everybody's sorry. Everybody's out of work. And so mm-hmm. it's pretty much killed an already low-paying job um, situation. So a lot of our musician friends are hurting really bad. And on top of that, the things that have happened over the past you know, week, just the escalation that's happening in the United States right now have just been just horrendous. And, and so... Chatting, I were talking about like what can we do because it's just everything that's been said has already been said, and and I don't want to sit mm-hmm. here and preach about it. You know, everybody's tired, everybody knows what a mess it is. We all know that change comes through power of position, power of money, and power of violence, and we, it's just history repeating itself when we see in what's happened. So what we decided to do and what I suggest, and of course, I'm not telling you to, I'm just suggesting, like, if you don't know what you can do, as you've heard many, probably everybody say, you know, donate, support, Black Lives Matters, you can give money to help the protesters who need to be bailed out of jail. Yes, um, Atlanta Solidarity. Yes, There's also, you can go to the NAACP website and they have a form that you can fill out and put your name at and they will look up your state representatives and they will help you send a letter asking for deliberation and intentional criminal justice reform. They'll also Mm -hmm. ask for help for like even student loans for people during the time of the pandemic who are suffering, who have lost jobs. They're asking for just a break. They're not asking for full Medicare. They're asking just for a break in healthcare at this time while so many people are hurting. So, and they will look up your representatives. They will do the letter. All you got to do is just fill out a few forms and you can send it. It is so easy. And I don't, like, I'm one of those people's like, yeah, send an email is not going to help. But if enough people, again, do it, It's better than not doing anything. And really the best thing you can do, you can support your locally owned black businesses and organizations who are going to need help and who need help and who have been needing help. So one of the things that we have decided to do, and we should have done long ago, and it's really kind of like, fuck us. Like, we are fucking idiots. We have a friend in New Orleans who has this nonprofit His name is Darian Douglas, and he started this collective called Second Line Arts Collective and is devoted to the cultivation of artistic excellence for students aged 15 to 23. And it's basically like if you're wanting to be a musician, if you're musically talented, if you have that creative aspiration, It's old school mentoring in music through different musicians who are currently practicing. And it's also, that's like half of it. The other half of it is teaching them entrepreneurship and teaching them the business side of music, which is even more so important than the actual music side of it. So it's taking, it's taking like the traditional arts education program and it's focusing that, but then it's also taking this mentorship aspect that is very prevalent 
in um, the music world and it's teaching them how to like, you know, market themselves, brand themselves and make a living. It's what it's doing. It's teaching them how to make a living with their performance. I strongly encourage you, if you don't know of a Black-owned business or a Black organization, you've got the internet. So do some research. If you want an easy in to support children in New Orleans who are looking to be musicians and to help this organization prepare them for the real world. And also they're having to readapt, like musicians at this time, people who teach music are having to totally readapt how they teach teach people because of the virus they're they're going to need money for cleaning supplies for having venues that are letting you maintain social distance how to deal with the really hard life of being a musician and making art during the pandemic time and afterwards so i highly recommend and i'll put a link to uh, darian's foundation here second line arts collective and it is secondlinearts.org. So in, in addition to things that you can do as far as donating to your organization of choice, also be sure to fucking vote. So vote right. locally, vote state, vote federal. For sure. Mm-hmm. And that means, I don't know what this fucking election is going to look like. If you have to get your hazmat mm-hmm. suit out to go yep. punch holes or fill in little doodads, then Do it. it is worth it. That is the one thing that I will get out and risk the virus for. It is so yes, important this I election period. I have, um, so sorry, Patrice, that was amazing. <laughs> Just me crying. No, just the whole, you know, you called me earlier this week and you're like, I had this story and I wanted to do it, but I feel like it's so inappropriate right now because it so shows the privilege. And I'm like, you know, I think you did amazing using that in exactly the right way. Spectacular. Thank you. Yeah, I've got, you know, I can share a couple links that I found too that are full of just a few if you have that same feeling, if you have that, like, what the fuck can I do? Realistic steps that you can take. And it's, you know, there are a lot of lists going around right now that are specifically towards, right. you know, what are you going to do, white people? Right. Like, people. If, if you were a white listener of this show, what are you going to do? Because you better fucking do something. And Ooh. so there are a whole lot of lists going around. There's one that I found that I think is really good. It was like 75. It, I mean, it's like 75 things oh, yeah. you can do. Of various. Mm-hmm. Some of them are just fucking easy. It's like oh, buy yeah. this book and talk about it with somebody. Right. You know, educate I mean, like children. read this article. Yes. Educate your children. You know, there are a lot of things that you can do. And there are a lot of ideas that are running around right now that I know everybody's exhausted, but. Yeah. You know, there's there's a lot of information being shared right now that doesn't always get a platform. Right. And mm-hmm. use this time to keep yourself up to date on it. You know, like really think about what you can you personally can do where you are, like think about your capabilities and your skills and your strengths and your community because right. 
you're doing this, you know, if you were a white person in this time right now, you're doing this for somebody else. It's not about you. Right. So, no. you know, I mean, keep that in mind too. But you guys are awesome. Patrice is awesome. <laughs> Do some fucking work. So thank um, y'all for listening. We appreciate appreciate y'all so much. Thank you. We're gonna go cry in the after show. Yay! <laughs> Come join us at the after show. Love y'all. Bye. Yeah. Bye guys. Sorry, y'all. I just totally fucking that, lost it. I didn't mean to. Uh, you know what? That was I think the right yeah. way to go.